theyeshiva.net. Today's class is dedicated by Stanley Freed in memory of his dear wife, Sarah Miriam Bas Avraham, in tribute to her first yard site on the sixth day of Shvat, coming up this Shabbos. Even now, a year after her passing, the whole family feels the void of the warmth and love that she brought into her home and community. Her impact will forever be lasting, impacting many people. Her legacy of hospitality, generosity, non-judgmental openness will always be a part of their lives and the lives of all who knew her. Dedicated with immense love and gratitude by Yehuda, Iron, Usher, Levi, Ben, Aliza, Elena, Chaim, Fried, and their families. And she may indeed remain an eternal source of blessing and inspiration and empowerment. Thank you. Okay. I said that the title is The Sleepers, so uh, I did it to myself. Nobody will be able to sleep. I once heard a rabbi from South Africa speak about an experience he had, if it actually happened or it was just a joke, I don't know, I never asked him, but it's certainly uh, pretty funny. Basically, he would get up every Friday night in South Africa and Johannesburg and give his sermon to a very, very large crowd in South Africa. Everybody comes to Shul Friday night, even those who don't come Shabbos day. Friday night, you come to Shul. It's a very traditional community in that sense. And that's when the main sermon is. So he would get up to give his sermon. And this fellow on the front row, sitting in the front row, was an older man. His name was Berkowitz. The rabbi would start talking, and at some point he would fall asleep. But this was like a sacred tradition. Midday Shabbos b'Shabbat, every single Shabbos, he wouldn't miss a week. As the rabbi was giving his sermon, Berkowitz fell asleep, and worse, began to snore. Okay. This went on for many, many years. One Friday night, the rabbi is walking up to the pulpit, to the shtender, to give his sermon. And guess what? He already hears the snoring. And he looks, and he sees Berkowitz is already sleeping and snoring. At this point, even the rabbi's patience sometimes plotses. He lost it. After years, I guess, of uh, containment. And he says, Berkowitz, I don't understand you. Every week, you fall asleep after I start my sermon. You think I'm boring, I have nothing to say, so you sleep when I'm talking. But this week, I didn't even open my mouth yet. You can't even say it's boring, I'm walking up, why are you sleeping? Berkowitz looks up and says, Rabbi, I trust you. The tradition of Jews sleeping, <laughs> sometimes with the eyes closed, and sometimes with eyes open, if you're really good at it, goes back a very, very long time. In fact, the Medrash Rabbah says in Megillah and Esther that Rabbi Akiva, no less a personality of the stature of Rabbi Akiva, was giving a shira presentation, and his students snoozed off and fell asleep, to the point that Rabbi Akiva changed the subject in order to bring them back to consciousness, and that's when he said his famous teaching, why did Esther merit to govern 127 provinces 
of the Persian Empire during the time of the reign of her husband Achashverosh, and he connected it with Sarah, who lived 127 years. You have to know why Rabbi Akiva chose that teaching to inspire and arouse his audience. But I guess you see that people fell asleep. But the point that we're going to discuss today is a very fascinating and somewhat enigmatic halacha that deals with people falling asleep during the Seder. Now you would say it's not a halacha, it's a reality. If you know how hard I work for the preparations of Pesach, it's very normal that sometimes the people that work hardest at some point take a dremel, they take a snooze or even a nap during the Seder around the table or somewhere else. And indeed we'll see that our sages dealt with this halacha, with this question of people falling asleep. Now you would say, what's the question? They fell asleep, they fell asleep, okay. Hopefully they'll wake up and they'll finish. But as it turns out, that the laws here can become very intricate when it comes to the Seder night. So let's let's go back to the origin of it. If you open your source sheets, and you go to the opening, the first source in your source sheets, and we post the source sheets on the yeshiva.net, so if anybody wants to download them later, or print them out, or open them on the computer, they're always there on the website, the yeshiva.net. But you have it printed out here. And I guess somebody's doing construction right in the middle of my class this morning, so we won't fall asleep. The Pasuk says in this week's Parsha, Parsha's boy, Perik Yud Beis, Pasuk Mem Vav. Exodus, chapter 12, verse 46. The Torah is talking about the Karpim Pesach. Let's remember the background. The first Seder night that took place in Jewish history was the night before the Jewish people left Egypt. They left Egypt on the 15th day of Nisan in the year 2448 since creation, 2448 since creation. On the 15th day of Nisan, the night before, the night, the eve of the 15th of Nisan, which means the night after the 14th of Nisan, they conducted the first Seder in history. And the staple of that Seder would be the sheep or the goat that everybody was instructed to offer on that day, on the 14th day of Nisan. And that goat or sheep would later be roasted. Sli'esh would be roasted on a fire. be a barbecue grill a la'esh. And they would partake of this meal. And this was called the Passover offering, the carbon Pesach. And this became the tradition. Every single era of Pesach, the Jewish people were instructed to bring this offering. Later, of course, it was in the Beis HaMikdash. First Beis HaMikdash, the second Beis HaMikdash. And this was the staple of the Seder night. As we say in our Seder, Hillel actually made a sandwich, and the sandwich contained matzah, which, by the way, was more like a lafa. The Yemenites still have matzah that is soft. It's like lafa. So it's actually quite an impressive sandwich. And in the sandwich, you had Pesach, you had lamb chops (laughs) or goat meat, and you had marer, so that was like, you know, the barbecue uh, spicy sauce or lettuce or horseradish. And you and Hillel ate them together. That was what kairich looked like. Today, of course, our kairich is much more impoverished. We're left with hard matzah, since most of us are not Yemenites. We're left with hard matzah and even stale matzah, and we have some lettuce inside. And marer, marer, which is lettuce or, horse, or horseradish. 
But the original sandwich was Pesach Matzah Mare. It had the beef. It had the beef. So to say the table, you ate the carbon Pesach. You will say the matzah. And you ate the more. This was the first seder. Four types of herbs. There's one of five types of herbs. You could use romaine lettuce, or you could use what we use, the horseradish. There's another few types of, uh, of mara. The Mishnah Sachem. When Moshe Rabbeinu introduced this mitzvah to the Jewish people when they were still in Egypt, he told this to them in the beginning of Nisan, two weeks before, and he said that every family, every home, needs to purchase a sheep or a goat, sell a bias, and together families would partake in the carbon Pesach. The father, the mother, the children, if there were grandchildren. What happens if there's a small family, it's a nuclear family, it's a small family, and you don't have enough people to be able to consume an entire lamb or an entire goat. So what do you do? They can join. This was called a chabura. You joined. He says you joined with your neighbors. You can join with friends. You can join with relatives. And you would do the seder together and eat the carbon Pesach together. And indeed, this is how it was done year in, year out. As the Chazal say in Psachim, Ein ha-Pesach nechal ela b'chabura. The Pesach offering was not eaten alone. You had to have a chabura, a group of people. And usually it was a large group. I mean, it depends on how much a person could eat. But there was a family or a few families together, depending on the size of the family. You know, you can have a family, Baruch Hashem, that's very large. They don't need other families. Or you could join with families and friends. And everybody would subscribe, so to speak, to this carbon Pesach. Pesach and Nechel Ela And they would offer it. One person would offer it on their behalf. And then they ate it together. Wherever they ate it, they would barbecue it and they would eat it, whether it was indoors or outdoors. And have the Seder together, this was a group. So the Pesach was eaten always with a group of people that was prearranged earlier, that's how it was purchased, that's how it was bought, on behalf of a family or behalf of a few families, a few neighbors, a few friends, a few relatives, as much as they wanted. At least everybody can get at least a little piece of the carbon Pesach, not big, a kazaya, so you can even have a very large group eating it together. Of course, they had other foods so that people, because if you had so, if you have a huge family eating the carbon Pesach, it wouldn't be enough for everybody to be satisfied. So sometimes you would have a little bit of that and you would have another carbon, a chagiga, to be able to satisfy everybody. Comes the Pasuk and says, Perik Yud Beis, Pasuk Memvav, chapter 12, verses 46, chapter 12, verse 46, Babayis Echod Yeochel. It should be eaten in one house. When Moshe Rabbeinu is telling the laws to the Jewish people about this offering, he says it should be eaten in one house. Do not take out any part of the meat from the house outdoors. In other words, it has to remain in the location that was designated for eating the current Pesach. And then, you're also not allowed to break a bone. Rashi says, what does it mean, it should be eaten in one house, you shouldn't take it out. He says it means, it has to remain in the group that was designated to eat it. Don't, for example, split the group into two and say, okay, you guys will eat half of it somewhere and we'll eat the other half of it. Don't do it. So that includes also 
That includes one element. You have to stick to your chabur, you have to stick to your group. Now let's see the next source. Psachim daf peivav. This is the track they dedicated to Pesach. Say our sages. You might think that a person eating the current Pesach should eat it in two places. So for example, I start my current Pesach in my house, and then I want to go to your house <laughs> and, and, and continue the meal there. Maybe I'll even bring my meat to your house and eat it in two places. That's why the Torah says, no, stay in your one house. From here, they derived an interesting halacha. What's the halacha? If the shamish ate a kazayis, Kazayis is the volume of an olive of the Pesach offering. Bitzad HaTanur, near the oven. If he's smart, he should fill his stomach from it. And if the group wants to help him, they could come and sit near him. What does this mean? So Rashi says, HaShamash. You have the Shamash, the waiter or the chef, he was in charge on the barbecue. So he was roasting it. He forgot. He put in a kazayas into his mouth. And he was part of this group. So if he's smart, he should make sure to fill up his stomach with it. Because if he gets up from there and he goes into another place... He won't be able to continue eating it because the carbon Pesach has to be eaten in one place. You have to remember that in the olden days, many houses, maybe most houses, only had one room. It's not like today, a house can have, Baruch Hashem, many bedrooms. Even if you go to visit old houses in America the way they were 150, 200 years ago, you'll see if a house had more than two rooms, it was a big Kiddush. A house had one room. It's interesting how they lived, you know. You can have uh, eight people sleeping on one bed, mattress, if you're familiar, how it worked. Life was different. So when the Torah says it should be eaten in one house, Chazal understood it also means in one room. Because often a house had one room. So they said you can't even take it from one room to another room. You want to go upstairs. You take the carbon Pesach, you want to go upstairs. Continue eating upstairs. That was not allowed. You could designate a room, but that's where you have to eat. If you're eating here, this is where you eat. Even to go to another room in the same house was forbidden, because it says, So that's why this Shamish, who forgot, and he's starving, so he's by the barbecue, and he starts eating. He now can't go back in and eat over there, because that would be a different location. So the whole group could come to him, and they could make this the place. That's fine. They could eat outside by the barbecue. Or... He could just eat whatever he's eating over there because in the new place he won't be able to eat. Huh? If the place is in the house. If the, if the meal starts in the house, right? If the carbon basic is eaten in the dining room, yeah? I can't say, okay, let's go now continue on the porch. Or let's go to our next door as a neighbor. Or let's go outside. Or let's go upstairs. Or let's go to the basement. Or let's go to the living room. You get it? You stay in one place. Yes, 
We could designate a room. You want, we want to sit, uh, we want to sit in what, in a room? That's the fine. But once, if this is the meal, the carbon basic, you can't take it outside and continue outside. Or from outside, inside. Now, this was nighttime, so people ate in the house. Especially, this is the night of Egypt, the Makas Pchoyres, so they had to stay in the house. Usually, Pesach was a different situation, but this carbon Pesach, remember, was different. Because they had to stay in the house. This was unique. You understand? Halachically, you can eat it wherever you want in one place. But that year, they had to stay in the house because outside was the plague of the Makas Pcheris, of the death of the firstborn. And they quarantined themselves in their house and they put blood, right, on the mezuzahs, on the two temples of the door and on the roof of the door. They put the blood of the carbon Pesach. But that was unique for that year. That didn't happen again. Okay, now. There was a special halacha, then I'll let her leave the house till the morning. That was that year. Now, what's the logic behind this? Is there a logic? So the Mepharshim explain that this is all part of the idea of freedom. When a king sits down for a meal, or a queen sits down for a meal, or a prince sits down for a meal, they don't run around from the kitchen to the dining room to the living room. Right? Royalty, aristocracy, yeah? I don't take a sandwich and go upstairs and downstairs, right? In a more, it's more of a, what's the right word? It's a less dignified way of eating. I'm holding my sandwich or my potato chips and I'm running from here. Royalty, the way of eating, aristocracy is you sit down in one place and this is your place. So since on Pesach, Kulanu Mesubin, everyone is a Ben Chayr, we, so to speak, reenact the experience of liberty and freedom and emancipation. So the halacha dictates that everyone behaves like a king and a queen in their own home. So therefore, we establish a place for the carbon Pesach, which represents the freedom and the night of freedom. And we don't run, we're not going upstairs, we're not going downstairs in the middle, we're not continuing the meal at a friend, we're not going outside, we're not going to another room. This is how many commentators explain the the rationale, or at least one of the reasons behind this halacha. Fine. It seems pretty straightforward and clear. But from here, from this biblical verse, the sages deduced another very interesting halacha. And let's see how the Rambam phrases it in his Magnum opus of Halacha Mishnah Torah, your third source in the sources. Rambam Hilchus Chametz Matza, Perik Zayin Halacha Yudalat. The Rambam in the laws of Chametz and Matza, the seventh chapter, Halacha Yudalat, and he's basically quoting a Mishnah from the end of Maseches Psachim Daf Kufchaf, page one hundred and twenty in Mishnah and Talmud Psachim, and I quote the Rambam. Mi sheyashin b'seichasuda. If somebody, here we go to sleeping. If somebody who's doing the seder falls asleep in middle of eating the carbon pesach, I fall asleep. It's been a long day, or I should say, a long month, or a long two months. I fell asleep. I was in the middle of my sandwich. <laughs> Or I was in the middle of eating my meat, my carbon pesach, and I fell asleep. Vehekits. And then I wake up. Maybe I wake up five minutes later. Maybe I wake up 45 minutes later. 
Hopefully, if you're already sleeping, you know. <laughs> Do it well. Fascinating Allah. I can't continue eating the carbon Pesach. That's it. Stop. Even though I want to eat more. There's more on the plate. I didn't finish. The halacha is, you can't eat more. Stop. Move on. Move on with the Seder. Why? What's the logic? I fell asleep, okay? Ah? Oh. So this is very interesting. What the sages understood is, there is physical relocation and there is mental relocation. When I fell asleep, it's like I left the room. Not physically, I didn't leave the room. I stayed in one place the whole time. I have a very comfortable chair. I didn't want to leave the room. But mentally I left the room. I wasn't present. I wasn't conscious. When a person is asleep, they're in the room physically, but they're, they're in their own world. They're not in a relation with the table, with the people, with the seder. With the... So when I fell asleep in the middle of the meal, and then I awake and I want to continue eating, it would be considered as I'm eating it in a new location. Just like if I take the meat and I go to your house and I want to continue eating it. I'm not allowed to. It says, So if I go to sleep for half an hour or an hour and I wake up and now I continue eating it, it's like I'm eating the carbon Pesach in a new location. Again, not a new physical location, but a new mental location. In other words, it's not a continuum of the first meal. The first meal was interrupted. And now I'm beginning a new meal following my slumber. What's wrong with beginning a new meal? Nothing wrong with beginning a new meal. But the problem is with the carbon Pesach. <laughs> you could begin a new meal. Because you can eat 10 meals. You could fall asleep 10 times. But with the carbon Pesach, the Torah says, you can't have two meals. But by us echod ye achel, right? It has to be one meal in one place. So even though this is the same place, but it's like a new suda. It's like I went to a new place and I'm continuing, and I'm not continuing, I'm creating a new Sudha. So this is what the Chazal understood. That just like when I go to a different home, I can't continue eating the offering because this, this is not considered a continuation, but it's a new meal in a new space. So even if I'm in the same space, but I fell asleep in the middle of the meal, the first meal came to an end, and when I awake, it's disconnected from the previous one. Hence, I stop eating the Passover offering. Now the question is, does this have any relevance today? Today we don't do the carbon Pesach, and the answer is, it has a lot of relevance today. And that is, at a time when many people fall asleep. It's called the Afi Kaiman. It's been a long night. Now I know many people have different types of seders. There are seders that go fast. There are seders that don't go fast. There are people who like to hear themselves during the seder. And they want everybody else to hear them. They prepare a lot, a lot of insights and lectures and speeches. Some of you know about those, Dorim. And by the time you hit the Afikaiman, you are done. Or somebody at the table is done. Maybe not you. You're the matriarch. But some people are done. And they fall asleep. <laughs> voluntary or involuntary, right? <laughs> Once Winston Churchill was sitting in the... British Parliament. He was a very sharp man, and he had uh, he had a sharp tongue. And somebody was talking, and the person was so monotone. You know, Churchill had a way with words, but this person didn't have a way with words, and they they was very very monotonous, and they were going on and on and on and on. 
And Winston Churchill fell asleep, and he was a big fellow, and when he slept, you can hear it and see it. So this person got very offended and said, Mr. Churchill, do you have to sleep in middle of my presentation? He says, I don't have to. It's completely voluntary. <laughs> so whether it's voluntary or... <laughs> Whether it's voluntary or involuntary, the person fell asleep. So let's see the next halacha. Shulchan Aruch Harav, Hilchis Pesach, Simen Tov, Ayin Ches, Halacha Gimel. So the Shulchan Aruch Harav, the way he phrases it, the Shulchan Aruch of the Alter Rebbe, the Balatanya, the laws of Pesach. Section Tov, Ayin Ches, 478, and this is based on the discussion in the Tur and the Shulchan Aruch and the commentaries of the Shulchan Aruch, because there are a few opinions about this. But this is the halacha that most of the halachic authorities embrace. Take a look. This is the Shulchan Aruch. The Shulchan Aruch addresses laws that didn't apply in the time of the Beis HaMikdash only. It addresses laws that apply timelessly even in the time of exile. The Rambam addresses all the halachas, even halachas of Mashiach and halachas of the Beis HaMikdash. But the Shulchan Aruch only addresses halachas that are relevant in today's time. That's the difference. The Rambam included all halacha, even those that are not relevant today because you don't have a base of Mikdash. Today we have the Afikaim. Why do we eat an Afikaim? We already ate matzah. You remember the system of the Seder is, after Rachtz, after you wash a second time, you do Maitzi, matzah. We make a Maitzi, we make a bracha lachilis matzah, and we eat matzah. And then you eat marr, and then you eat kairich, and then you eat a sandwich, and then finally we come to the delicious egg, which tastes better than ever, and we begin Shulchan Eirich. Right? And when we finish the meal, you have the fish, you have the soup, you have the chicken, whatever you're serving, dessert. I'm not going to ask you what you serve for dessert for Pesach, because I know that the standards of dessert go from uh, pizza to ice cream to cheesecake to uh, oranges or nothing. But whatever your dessert is, now it's time for the afikaiman. Because after the afikaiman, we're not going to eat anything. Ain maftir and achra Pesach afikaiman, right? The word afikaiman comes from two words, a combination of two words, afikuman. Bring out the dessert. Bring out the meal. Man is, is mazoin, is nutrition meal. Afiku means bring out. Afikaiman. We say in the Haggadah, the mission says, Ein maftir in Pesach Afikaiman, which means we do not continue eating after we eat Afikaiman. Why? What do you care if you continue eating? What if after the Seder you want to eat? <laughs> I don't know why, but some people. The answer is because the Afikaiman was introduced for a particular reason. It's a direct commemoration of the carbon Pesach. The carbon Pesach used to be eaten at the end of the meal because you didn't want people starving when they ate the carbon Pesach. Why? Because again, royalty doesn't fresh, forgive me. Right? Aristocrats, they're not so starving that they have to jump on the food. So the carbon Pesach was eaten after the meal so people weren't obsessed with the food. They can eat it calmly and nicely. It's nechalala soiva. They were already, I'm not going to say satiated in our terms, American terms. Satiated means you can't breathe. Then satiated meant you ate a little bit, so your stomach wasn't going crazy. It's not what today satiated means. Satiated means today, after nine courses, you can't breathe anymore. You feel like you're having a heart attack. You shut down emotionally. That's called satiated. If not, I'm not satiated. I'm starving. It's like I'm fasting for three days. But then, before before a lot of things happened, satiated means my stomach is not, you know, Rumble, yeah, it's not rumbling from the pangs of, of, of starvation. And then they ate the carbon Pesach. And after the carbon Pesach, you didn't eat another meal because 
They wanted the taste of the Karmel Pesach should linger with the person throughout the evening. Okay. Today we don't have a Karmel Pesach, so we eat Afikaim. The Afikaim is a special matzah that, of course, we put away in the beginning of the Seder Yachatz and our children discover it. <clears throat> and we eat it Zecher Le Pesach. So that's why the Afikaim has a very special place in Jewish tradition and Jewish law and Jewish ritual, because this is what we're eating as a commemoration for the sheep and the, the, the lamb or the goat that was eaten. We don't have the lamb or the goat. We're not doing a carbon. So we eat the afikaimah. So that's why when you eat the afikaimah, came the halachic authorities and they said the same laws that the Torah says about the carbon Pesach, we apply also to the afikaimah. And now we'll understand, me, shiyashin memtzachilas afikaimah, Fifth source. If you fall asleep in the middle of eating the Afikaiman, Vinayar Mishnasai. I fall asleep. Twenty minutes later, an hour later, I wake up. I can't eat anymore. Even if I didn't yet eat the volume of an olive of my Afikaiman, I understand if a person already ate a big portion of the Afrikaimen, and they fall asleep, you're done, fine, move on. But I did. I just, I just began. I took a little piece, not even a kazayas. I fell asleep, I wake up, I want to continue. The halacha is, you don't continue the Afrikaimen. Why? Because sleeping is considered an abrupt interruption. An interruption, a hefsek, between one meal and a, between the first eating and the second consumption. So if I now continue eating the after my sleep, it's like I went to another location and I continued eating the afikaiman, not in the first location. And it's forbidden to eat the in two locations. If I'm sitting in my dining room and eating the afikaiman, I can't go to your house to continue eating the afikaiman, either mine or yours, or go to another room in my house. And sleeping, again, as we learned, is like going to a new place. The second meal is like in a new place, in a new mental location. It's not a continuation of the first one. And the Torah says the Karim Pesach has to be eaten in one location, Babayis Echad. And therefore we apply it also to the afikaiman. Okay, straightforward. So if you're going to sleep, do it before the Afikaiman, do it after the Afikaiman, or make sure you ate enough of your Afikaiman to fall asleep. Now here comes a fascinating disclaimer or qualification. And that is, this only applies to Corona. This only applies to a Corona Seder. What, it, what does it mean? What does it mean? Let's see. Next source. And let me say it before so you'll understand the source. This law applies only if you're holding your Seder alone. We know 2020, Corona broke out, when was it? A week after Purim, you remember? March 2020, and many people, including some of our parents, or grandparents, or relatives, or friends, held the Seder literally alone, literally alone in the house. There was not one other person at the Seder table. How did they know about Corona? You think Corona invented Corona? 
The Black Plague is the 1300s. This is... <laughs> yeah, listen, there, there, were, there were people alone, yeah, throughout history, unfortunately. So here's the halacha. If you're eating the Passover offering or the afikoiman in a group setting, as most of us do, Baruch Hashem with a chabura, and remember the carbon Pesach, you had to eat the chabura. Today, technically, you're allowed to have the Seder alone. It's not comfortable, but if you really want to, you could. You're allowed to sit yourself at the Seder. Yeah, you'll ask yourself the Manishtana, which is fine. We talk to ourselves anyway. However, in the, when they had the carbon Pesach, it was a mitzvah to have more people. So if it's with a group, now the halacha is that if he or she falls asleep, after they awake, they could continue eating as long as one member or a few members in the group stayed awake. No, stayed awake. Schmoozing, singing, eating, whatever they're doing. Even if many members of the group fell asleep, you have a group of 20 people, <laughs> 15 of them fell asleep. Maybe most of them fell asleep. And it's not uncommon if you say there is not ending. It's not uncommon. As long as some members of the group stayed awake, everybody can resume the meal when they awake. Let's see it inside. Psachim dav kufchaf amad alef. This is a mission at the end of tractate psachim. Yashnu miktsasan. If part of them fell asleep, yoichelu. When they get up, they can eat. Kulan, if everybody fell asleep. <laughs> if the whole group fell asleep, lo yechelu. Now they're all sleeping, they can continue eating. Rabbi Yaisi, Rabbi Yaisi adds one more point. Nisnamnemu yoichelu. Nirdemu lo yechelu. Nisnamnemu means you snooze. What is that? You snooze, you lose. You doze off. Nirdemu means dremel, you shluff. There's two different postures. Nisnamnemnu means you're not fully gone. You may not be, you know, fully coherent, but if somebody asks you a question, you can answer. Nirdemu means you're shluff. I have to wake you up. So he says, even if everybody is snoozing, but they didn't fall asleep, mamish, and they wake up, they could continue. But if nirdemu lo yechel, now let's see how it's, how it's, Formulated in halacha in the Rambam. Rambam halachas chametz matzah perik zayin halacha yedalat. Misha yashim b'seichas sudav heikitzayin chayzav eich. If you fell asleep middle of the carbon pesach and you woke up, you're not allowed to continue eating. Bnei chabura sheyashnu mikzason. But if you had members of a group and part of them fell asleep, b'toychas sudav middle of the meal chayzrin v'yaychlin. Even those who fell asleep when they wake up, they could continue eating. Near the mukulan. If everybody fell asleep. <laughs> The whole table. And then they wake up, then they can. If they just snoozed off, they could wake up and continue to eat the carbon Pesach. And Shulchan Aruch HaRav Hilches Simen Ches. He's going to apply it to our days. Let's see how he formulates it. When was it said that if you fall asleep in the middle of the Afikaiman and you wake up, you can't continue eating it even if you just ate a tiny piece in the beginning? If you're sitting alone, but if you have a chavura group sitting together, and some of them fall asleep in the middle of the afikayman and they wake up, they can all continue to jump right back into the meal. Even if they already ate a kazayas. Why? Why? You just told me that if you fell asleep, you interrupted the first meal, and the new meal is like in a new location. 
The answer is, She'ein shinosam chashuva hefsek. Their sleeping is not considered interruption of the first meal. Why? I fell asleep. Kivon shemiktsas chavurosam nisharu shino. Because part of their chavura, part of their chavura, part of their chevrech, the word chevrech comes from chavura, like a chevra, a group, remained awake. Avalim yoshnu kol But if everybody taka fell asleep, then indeed, they won't be able to continue eating. The logic, I think, is very clear. If I'm eating in your company, even if I fell asleep, my meal has not been interrupted. You know why? Because we're in this together. We're in cahoots. And you're still part of the meal. I'm not. I left to a different world. <laughs> I checked out for an hour. But you didn't check out. She didn't check out. He didn't check out. Whoever is there. As long as somebody, some of the people or somebody is awake, so now when I resume consciousness, I'm not starting a new meal. Shalom Aleichem, welcome to America. I jump right back into the game. Because you kept the chair, so to speak, warm. (laughs) You kept the meal going, even though I wasn't there because I fell asleep. So the fact that I took a nap for an hour, maybe even more, doesn't mean my meal has ceased. Why? Because I'm not alone. I'm part of a chevra. And this meal was never interrupted by me falling into the sleep, in sleep because the chevra is there. Of course, if the entire group eating the afikaiman, if everybody fell asleep, <laughs> then indeed the meal got interrupted because there's nobody keeping the chairs, they're keeping the chairs warm, but they're not, uh, <laughs> they're not awake. So then they cannot continue eating the afikaiman. And then he makes the difference in the next halacha between nisnamnemu and nirdemu, between snoo- taking a little snooze and really falling into a sleep. And halachically, that's the distinction. Now, at first glance, when we read these halachas, they seem extremely technical. They're really dealing with a very technical situation. Somebody who's eating, he's tired, she's tired. You fall asleep, can you continue eating and not eating? That's on, on, on one level. Very, very technical halacha in a particular situation. And the truth is, in most situations it wouldn't even apply, because as I said, we had it during corona, but how often does it happen that a person is at a seder alone without anybody else, without any b'nei chabura, the time of the Beis HaMikdash, and today when you're eating the afikaimah. It happens, but it's certainly not very common. Yeah. In the Beis HaMikdash, you wanted to finish, you didn't want want to leave over the carbon Pesach, and after the next morning, it was called Neusser, and the meat would have to be burnt, so you wanted it should be eaten, at least you try. Sometimes things happen, you know, a person gets sick, or a person can't eat, whatever, but you tried whatever you can to eat it up, and that's why you had to have more people. For a person to eat a whole lamb is, is, is difficult. And the Chathil of the Torah says you should try to eat it with other people. It's a question of Shaykhat and Allah Yachid, not Shaykhat and Allah Yachid, but certainly according to everybody, we try to have other people. The Pesach is eaten by Chabura. It's the one carbon where you want Dafka Chabura, Dafka group. So that's why it wasn't a very common halacha, but still the halacha discusses this because it can happen. 
And Allah discusses all situations, even if they're remote. And in our times, we saw that it was actually quite, re- quite, quite relevant and practical. But it seems like a very technical situation, very technical question. What is more? As I was once teaching this to my students, we were learning Masechus Pesachim, and somebody said, you know, why does everything have to be stretched so much? The Torah says, eat the carbon Pesach in one house. Leave it by that. <laughs> Leave it by that. So one house became one room. Okay, I can understand. Most houses had one room. Okay. But now it means, even if I'm in the same room, I can't fall asleep. So the Chazal stretched it from physical location to mental location. Okay, because it's considered a new meal. And now they have all these qualifications. If it's with a group and not a group, how much I'm sleeping. So yeah, it all makes sense, but did Chazal really need to stretch it? And then they stretched it to the Afikoyman. Torah is not talking about the Afikoyman. Torah is talking about the carbon Pesach. The Beis Yosef has an expression, Chumra Ba'alma. It's a stringency. Some people say it doesn't apply to the Afikoyman. The Afikoyman is only a commemoration for the carbon Pesach. Do we have to apply every last intricacy? But Lahalach and Shulchan Aruch, we say it does apply to the Afikoyman. The Vilna Gaon writes, he has an amazing commentary on Sefer Mishle, on the book of Proverbs. It's a beautiful, beautiful commentary by the Vilna Gaon. It was written by one of his students, Rabbi Nachman of Shklov, what he heard from his teacher. There's a Pasuk in Mishle, which means your source should be blessed. And the source here means, according to most commentators, the procreative power of a person to generate, to create a new generation. That's called the mucker. Usmach me'eshes nu'erecha and rejoice with the woman of your youth. So he's really blessing him that their, their marriage and relationship should be blessed and, and full of joy and powerful. And the source, the father and the mother, should be blessed, should be able to produce a generation of, of healthy and wholesome and happy children. The Vilna Gaon says, like every Pasuk in Mishle, it's about wisdom and about learning. There's also, the words are metaphoric for, a, for, for another layer. And he says, and this is a very famous principle, very famous principle. Torah has generally two layers. It's called Nigla de Torah and Pnimiyas Torah. In Zohar, in Baalaisa, it's called Gufa de the body of Torah and the soul of Torah. What does it mean? The goof is concrete. You could see my body, it's tangible, it's physical, it's practical, it's concrete. The body concretizes the soul. A soul without a body exists, but it's transcendent, it's elusive, it's nebulous. The body concretizes it, giving it a physical vehicle. When a person finishes their mission on earth, the soul doesn't die. It's rather unplugged. Unplugged is a much more accurate definition. When a refrigerator is plugged into the wall, the electricity flows through the refrigerator so that it can cool the food. When somebody unplugs the refrigerator, the electricity doesn't die. Electricity doesn't die. It returns back to its source. The refrigerator now is not processing the electricity, but electricity doesn't die. When a person is physically alive, the soul's electricity is being processed through the body. Like a phone that's plugged in, like a computer that's plugged in, like an air condition that's plugged in. When a person finishes their mission on earth, the soul doesn't die. 
Just the body is not manifesting the electricity of the soul. When a person is alive, the body concretizes. It brings down the soul into a physical vehicle. The soul has vision. But pre-birth and after death, the soul doesn't use the eye to have vision. And therefore its vision is infinite. The soul could see from one end of the world to the other end of the world. It sees things on a different level because it doesn't have the limits of the body. In the body, it's concretized through the body. So when the Zayar says Torah, Zayis HaTorah Adam, Torah is compared to the organism of a person. There's the Neshama of Torah and there's the Guf of Torah. The body of Torah is the way Torah is concretized in law, tradition, and ritual. And just like the body is made up of a very, very complex and intricate system comprised of 50 or more trillion cells, each cell has its unique place and position and function within a healthy organism to make it work. And every body is comp- every single body is comprised of the building blocks of matter that make up the body, all the way to the levels of limbs and organs and sinews and bones and arteries and tissue, etc. The same is true with Torah. The body of Torah is comprised of very, very detailed and intricate nuances and laws and cells that together make up the living organism called Torah. Torah is Chayim. Adam. The expression. Sefer told us Adam. But the Torah also has Nishmasa Torah. the soul of Torah. This is called Pnimiyas Torah. The reason it's called Pnimiyas is because the soul infuses the guf with a deeper energy and vitality and consciousness. And even though the body the body needs the soul, the soul needs the body. So the Vilna Gaon says in Mishle, Yehi mekarcha baruch usmach me'eshes nurecha. That's Mishle chapter 5, Pasuk Yitches. The Vilna Gaon says like this, Mekar is the source. The Torah has two layers. So every law in Torah exists on two dimensions. One is the body dimension. The body dimension is understanding its concrete, physical, practical manifestation. For example, this halacha. If you fall asleep in the middle of the carbon Pesach and you wake up, you can't continue eating it. That's very practical. If you have a group and they're awake, you could continue. Got it. But you also have the same law on a soul level. Meaning the law is addressing something spiritual and psychological and emotional, transcendent. And the soul and the body come together. So he says, Yehi mekar chabaruch. Go back to the source of Torah. Because that will be a blessing because it will give you a depth and a psychological and emotional relevance by understanding the inner, inner dimension of every law. When then, smach me'eshes nurecha. Then you'll have a new a joy with the woman of your youth. Meaning, when we start growing up and we learn Torah, we don't start with the soul of Torah. You start off with the practicalities. But when you get into the details, there's a lot of questions that it really is, this, 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 this nuance really so important? Is this a little too nuanced? Is this a little too intricate? So he said, but once you see the mucker, once you understand the spiritual dimension, then you'll go back to the woman of your youth. You'll go back to the Torah of your youth and you'll have a new simcha because suddenly you'll see how every detail is really a reflection 
of a spiritual truth that is concretized through that particular halacha. And what seems like an insignificant detail really represents a profound cosmic truth, just like every cell in the body is so significant, or just like every, uh, every element in the, in, the, in the genes of a person, in the DNA of a person. In every single cell, you have a double copy of the genome, which is essentially the genetic code, which is the manual and the blueprint of how your organism should function. And the sequence of the DNA is so meticulous and precise that if God forbid there will be even a tiny alteration in the sequence, it can create tremendous consequences, sometimes very catastrophic ones. In the body, what's the difference? If this chemical is before this chemical, if this letter is before this letter... But when you, when you understand what's behind it, it's not just a letter, it's really the letter is a code for an entire structure, you see how significant it is. A simple example would be, if you decide to send me an email, and for some reason you don't have patience, so you take out the dot from the email. Rabbi YY at theyeshiva.net You say, you know what? Who cares about a dot? Take out the dot. I'm never going to get your email. (laughs) So you'll ask me, why? And the answer is, it looks like a dot. (laughs) For us dummies who don't know back-end programming, it looks like a dot. But if you know about back-end programming, you know that that dot captures very complicated code language. And in the back-end that dot allows you to connect to a certain code that sends your email through cyberspace. If not, I'm sorry. You simply, you can't send it. So on one level, it looks like a dot. On another level, if you're the programmer, you understand it's anything but a dot. It was simplified through a dot. So the Vilna Gaon says, when you go back to the mucker, to the source, to the back-end program of Judaism, suddenly you will learn that those insignificant dots are not dots. They have very, very profound spiritual, cosmic, psychological, and emotional meaning. Not in an obsessive way, but in a holistic way. Because the worst thing to think about a body is that details don't matter. Every detail is an indispensable component to the healthy organism. Why am I giving this introduction? Because that's what we want to now address to be able to really appreciate these halachas on a practical level, let's go back to let's see what it means on a source level, because as I said before, it seems like it's very technical and very uncommon, and also a very far stretch from the original law. It's like we have to stretch and stretch and stretch. That's as long as you don't appreciate the panimius, the soul of these halachas. And that's what we want to address Hashem, in the remainder of the class. I was 17 years old. I was a yeshiva bocher. I still remember the date. It was Chav Tevis, Tovshin Nun. That's January 20th of Tevis. January, it was around January 7th, that time of the year, January 1990, the beginning of 1990, a couple of years ago. Not so long ago, but a couple of years ago. I was younger than I am today. That's profound. That's profound. A little younger than I am. Still young, but I was a little younger than I am today. 
And Chav Tevis happens to be the yard site of the Rambam. The Rambam's yard site, Rabbeinu Moshe ben Maimon, is Chav Tevis. The Lubavitcher Rebbe instituted a shear in Rambam every day to finish the whole Mishnah Torah either in a year or three years. If you learn three chapters a day, you finish in a year. If you learn one chapter, you finish in three years. And it's very fascinating because the Rambam is the only work we have that covers all of halacha. Shulchan Aruch is only halachas of today. The Rambam is all of Jewish law. From the Beis HaMikdash, from Mashiach. So it's really the whole body of halacha. That day they were learning Rambam Hilchis Chomotsu So after Maid of the Lubavitcher Rebbe spoke, and he gave a sicha presentation, a shir in this Rambam, about the, about the sleeping in the middle of the Karbam. And he explained then the Pnimius the internal, spiritual, energetic dimension of these laws. It was just a few minutes, very brief and concise, but I still remember how moving it was for me. Number one, to be able to perceive beyond the external layer, to be able to perceive the inner dimension of the halacha. Number two, it was a paradigm of how you have to see halacha. And number three, the message itself was extremely uh, emotional. The message itself was extremely moving. And when we understand that layer, then suddenly we see how all the physical and technical details are manifestations of that inner truth. The Seder, essentially, the Seder of Pesach, which is introduced in Parshish Boy essentially represents the eternal story of the Jewish people. The journey of the Jewish people is a journey from Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, from the exodus of Egypt, all the way till Mashiach. And the Seder is that journey of the Jewish people as they left Mitzrayim and they began their work as God's people to transform themselves and to transform the world. And as we say in the Haggadah, Shaloi, we say in the God Every generation one ought to re experience it's a mitzvah. Remember all the days of your life. In other words, the Seder is not a once a year or once in history. It's a continuous mitzvah and process of the Jew to leave Egypt physically, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, and on our journey from Mitzrayim towards redemptiveness individually and collectively. Individually and globally, physically and spiritually. In the Haggadah itself we say, It wasn't in one generation that people stood up like Parai to destroy us, but in every generation there's another attempt to annihilate the Jewish people. In other words, the journey of Golis Mitzrayim and Golis Mitzrayim continues. And this Seder is when we celebrate the birth of our people, the birth of our identity. Lakachas loy goy of goy in chapter 16 compares Golis Mitzrayim to pregnancy, Golis Mitzrayim to birth. Hashem says, I came that night and you looked like a new baby that emerged from its mother's womb. Without clothes, submerged in blood like a baby coming out to the world. You shall live in your blood. Your umbilical cord had to be cut so that you could become a nation because you were almost in the womb of your masters and you had to be extracted from the womb and, and been given liberty and autonomy. In other words, Pesach is the birth of the Jewish people. The other holidays are development. And indeed, it's fascinating to observe 
the place that the Seder holds in the lives of many Jews who don't participate in other Jewish rituals and traditions. I'm not mistaking, even more than Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the Seder is the single most observed Jewish tradition among the Jewish people, even many millions who unfortunately are more assimilated or less affiliated. I believe I saw once a research that in Israel they could barely find a Jew who didn't participate in some type of Seder. And even in other places outside of Israel, where many Jews, even Yom Kippur won't come to Shul, but a Seder, I'm not going to say everybody has a Seder, but the vast majority participate in some, some type of Seder. And there's a reason for it. The reason is because somehow it touches on identity, who you are. It's not the details. You have Shavuos, you have Sukkot, you have Chanukah, you have Purim, you have even Yom Kippur, you have other great and important days. But somehow the, the, the Seder is who I am. Who I am. I belong to this family. I'm a Jew. Before what it means to be a Jew, but I'm a Jew. And that touches most Jews. I'm a Jew. I'm part of this people. However I interpret it, however I explain it. And that's what the Seder, the Seder represents. In fact, one of the most powerful qualities of Jewish history is that uninterrupted story. The fact that we have that memory and we tell that story every single day. The same matzah, the same stale matzah that we ate 3,300 years ago, we're still eating today. It's not just you tell a story, you enact a story. The same food, the memories, we know which day we left, we know how many people left, we know what we ate when we left, and we eat that food, we eat sometimes even taste the same. You tell the story. Yet, at some point, in the long journey, in the long journey of Jewish history, in the long journey represented by the Seder, at some point, many people fell asleep. They fell asleep at the Seder table. Why do people fall asleep? They find it boring, <laughs> they find it irrelevant, they find it monotonous, they may even find it disturbing, they may even find it painful, it may cause them pain. So people fall asleep, which means they check out emotionally, they check out spiritually, sometimes they check out physically. They do what Jews do during a boring sermon. It's called schluff, falling asleep. Say there was a rabbi who was once giving a sermon, and the president of the shul started to sleep. <clears throat> so the rabbi, who didn't like the president, tells the gabbai, go knock him over his head and wake him up. So he knocks him over his head, the president looks up and he says, do it again, I could still hear him. At some point of our history, <laughs> a major part or a significant part of our people closed their eyes at the Seder table. They closed their eyes at the Karpen Pesach or the Afikaiman, what it represents. In other words, it became meaningless for them. It became irrelevant for them. And therefore they zoned out. They zoned out of the Jewish story. They zoned out of the story of Yitzhiyah Mitzrayim, of the story of Jewish identity, of the journey of the Jewish people from Mitzrayim to Harsinai, all the way to Mashiach. Somebody once said, I'm very good at sleeping, I can do it with my eyes closed. So sometimes people become very, very apt, very comfortable in their sleep. And when we think about this reality, 
it could become very, very sad and depressing. First of all, the way people look at themselves. I hear this all the time. Sometimes a person looks at himself or herself and feels that I'm detached. My father or my grandfather, my mother, my grandmother, my great-grandfather, at some point closed their eyes in the middle of the Seder. They went into a shluff. They didn't only doze off for a few seconds. They fell asleep. And now a few generations later, the grandchild, grandson, the granddaughter, the great-grandson, the great-granddaughter, feels that they don't have a connection. They don't really have a relationship. I didn't grow up with it. I don't understand it. I can barely read. I can barely understand what's going on. I never practiced in my home. They feel, they feel disconnected. There are others who eulogize them very swiftly and say, yeah, most of the Jewish people are lost from Knesset Yisrael. We have 15 million Jews. If you look at the amount of Jews who are actively mitzvah, actively, so to speak, sitting at the Seder table with their eyes open, involved, immersed, alive, it's a very, very small percentage, extremely small percentage. That's the fact. And there are those who are sitting around the table physically, but their eyes are still closed. <laughs> or their eyes are open, but they're sleeping with their eyes open. You know, I may wear the garb, I may be dressed apart, I may be walking the walk, I may even be talking the talk. But internally, shluff, I'm not interested. I checked out. I was once teaching in a yeshiva and I would give classes in Gemara and there was a boy who sat right in front of me and he would stare at me. They were two-hour classes, but he was checked out. So I once went over to him and I said, you know, I have to say I'm very impressed with you. I see that you're not listening, which I understand. It's long, it's hard, but you, you, you look at me a whole time. How do you do that? He looks at me, he says, Rabbi Jacobson, I have 10 years experience with my father. So my father preached to me and screamed and preached and preached and I learned to look at him because I had to look at him but I checked out. So sometimes people sleep with their, op- with their, with their, with their eyes open. <laughs> Somebody once told the Panovich Yerav he was a big, he had a lot of ambitions. He says, you're dreaming. He says, yeah, <laughs> my dreams are not when I'm asleep. <laughs> my dreams are when I'm awake so I'm happy. To dream when you're awake is a little more difficult than to dream when you're sleeping. So sometimes people look at this group, the majority, and write them off. They're lost. They're disconnected. They're detached from the narrative. They interrupted the journey, whether it was conscious, unconscious, voluntary, involuntary, bemazed, not bemazed, because of apathy, because of ignorance, because of maliciousness, because of foolishness because of justified reasons, unjustified reasons, but they detached themselves from the golden chain that continues literally 3,330 years. They cut their umbilical cord that connects them to their progenitors, to their past. They decided to write their last chapter on such a glorious, beautiful story. Their chapter will be the last chapter. How sad, how difficult, how painful. And then there are others who say, How in the world do you think the Jewish people are worthy of redemptiveness, 
of Geula, of finishing the Seder, of saying when such big parts or major parts of their nation, maybe a majority of it, more than a majority, went to sleep. And there's such a minority that's awake. And sometimes the minority that's awake also becomes very judgmental. There's a holier-than-thou attitude. There's a dismissive attitude. I'm from the holy ones. You're from the sleepers. And that night, and I'll never forget it, I told you I was 17 years old, it left such an impact on me. And it molded, it, it molded the way I teach. The Rebbe said this premise is mistaken. And the reason this premise is mistaken, and I can still remember the emotions that touched me when I heard these words, because you don't understand the nature and the chemistry of the Jewish people, which is not based on isolation, it's based on Chabura. It's based on Bnei Chavura. It's based on a group. <laughs> the first thing the Torah says is not good in Chumash is Loi Toiv. What's the first Loi Toiv in Chumash? Loi Toiv Adam Levada. It's not good for Adam to be alone. Adam includes man and woman. Huh? Adam includes man and woman. You can look in Bereshis. I didn't make this up. I'm not saying this because it's a woman's class. If you look in Sefer Bereshis, it says, B'Tselem Elikim Asa Sa'adam Zachar Unikeva. I didn't make that up. Adam includes Adam and Chava. Yes, you could be more specific and say Adam and Chava. But B'Tselem Elikim Asa Sa'adam clearly says about Adam and Chava together. And when it says, Loitoi Ve'yois Ha'adam Levada, what does that mean? That Adam needs a soulmate. And Chava certainly needs a soulmate, right? They both need each other. It's not a he needs her and she doesn't need him. It wasn't the wisest woman who, it wasn't the wisest thing when the woman said, women need men like fish need bicycles. Why is that the only carbon that we eat Bechabura? The answer is because the carbon Pesach is the one carbon of Jewish identity. It's the offering that commemorates the night we became a people. We literally became a nation. Till that point, we were slaves. Slaves don't belong to themselves. Slaves belong, unfortunately, to their masters. The Sifarno says, the first mitzvah Hashem gave the Jewish people before any mitzvah is which? The mitzvah of counting time. How we establish our calendar, the first day of the month, the last day of the month. Why is that the first mitzvah? You can't find any other mitzvah in Egypt before they left. They had to hear one mitzvah. Not Shabbos. Even before Pesach. The first mitzvah was? Kiddush HaKadosh. Really? The calendar is so important? Like you're gathering a bunch of slaves. You're about to go free. But guys, before anything, let me tell you about the calendar. (laughs) Even today, nobody understands the calendar. There's two and a half people who know how the calendar works. It's very complicated, the calendar. Jewish calendar is very complicated. Roman calendar is solar. The Muslim calendar is lunar. The Jewish calendar is lunatic because it's solar and lunar together. (laughs) And putting the sun and the moon together creates lunacy. It's an impossible feat, and yet we do it every month. Ramadan could be in the spring, could be in the summer, could be in the winter. Pesach can only be in the spring, so you need the sun. But our months follow the moon, so that's a problem. Hence, our holidays are never on time, right? Every Jew says, this year Rosh Hashanah is late. This year Rosh Hashanah is early. I never heard anybody say, this year New Year's is early. New Year's is late. Thanksgiving is late. Why is Thanksgiving never late and Pesach and Shavuos and Sukkot are always early late? I never heard anybody say, this year Rosh Hashanah is on time. 
The answer is because it's never on time. <laughs> because the sun and the moon don't get along. Why is that the first mitzvah? So the Revadi Sifarno writes, HaChadosh Hazalachem. Slaves don't own their days. They don't own time. The difference between freedom and slavery is time. A slave knows the time, but he doesn't own the time. Your whims, your desires find my time. A free person, where does freedom first and foremost express itself? Time, your relationship to time. You own your time. It's yours. That's what he told them in Egypt. He was giving them the mentality of freedom before actually going physically free. You have to cultivate a mentality of freedom because if not, I could leave Egypt, but Egypt doesn't leave me as we discussed last week. Right, so that's what he was saying. In order to be able to celebrate Pesach, you're going to have to realize that the beginning of the month, you define it. This is our first day. The masters in Egypt will not define the first day. We will define it. That's why you can have people who are technically free, but if you don't own your time, if I don't own my time, I'm a slave. I can be a slave to my addictions, a slave to my laziness, a slave to my depression, a slave to my fears, and that's very deep. Sometimes it's worse than any other form of slavery because there's nobody physically chaining me, but internally I'm chaining myself. Oh, so Rosh is also established by the Besdin. There's witnesses, a whole process of witnesses. Yes, yeah, so, so, so let's go back. So the first night of Pesach, so Hashem says, Now when the Jewish people emerge as people, Hashem says, this carbon together. Families. Sela bias. Hapesach nechel b'chabura. Because our attachment is not luxury. It's not comfort. It's not if I have time, I'll find attachment. As we know today in the world of psychology, attachment is essential to the core of identity. There's no identity without attachment. They used to think attachment is later in life you'll form relationships. If my attachment in the earliest days and weeks and months of my life is wounded, the attachment with my primary caregivers, something very deep is wounded in a person's core. And the rest of their life they're trying to compensate for it. And very often what happens later is trying to replay and fix and repair that wounded attachment that could be very profound. And it's not just attachment. It's we live in that relational field of energy. Our facial expressions, as uh, our, 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 our gestures, our smiles, the way we react to people, the way you trigger me and I trigger you, in the earliest, earliest moments are essential. So the Pesach is Nechel Bechabura. And it's not just true emotionally, psychologically, it's also true collectively as a people. And I'm just going to refer to this very briefly because he once did a class on this, Parshas Boyo, before Pesach. What was the first mitzvah with the carbon Pesach? They had to take Agudas Ezoiv. They had to take a bundle of hyssop, hyssop plant, did I pronounce that correctly? Dip it in the blood of the Pesach and dye the doors of their home and remain in that house till the morning and not leave and eat the current Pesach there. And God says, I'll recognize the blood and I'll leap over your home and keep you safe. What is that all about? What is that all about? And one of the interpretations is, and it's quite astounding, is you can't leave Egypt if you don't go back to the moment where it all began.
And the moment it all began was, Yosef was sold as a slave to an Egyptian master. But the brothers had a problem, because how do they break the news of what they did to Tati, to Yaakov? So they took his tunic, his kusaynes pasim, his multicolorful tunic, and dipped it in the blood of a goat. No other animal. Rashi says it's the most similar to human blood. And they sent it to Yaakov Avinu, and they said, Hakir Noxaynes bin Chiyim Loi, recognizes this the tunic of your son or not? And Yaakov recognized it. And he said, I'm going to go down to my grave and grieve, mourning for my son, Taraif, Taraf, Yosef, Chayerachalosu. A wild beast has devoured my son Yosef. Here is the proof. The tunic is bloody. In other words, a wild, undomesticated beast has mold. No, they dipped it in blood of a goat so that Yaakov should perceive it as Yosef's blood. You understand? I'll explain to you again. A goat's blood is similar to a person. They wanted Yaakov should think that Yosef was devoured by an animal. If an animal devoured him and then left his tunic around, his tunic would be with his blood. You understand? It wasn't really Yosef's blood, it was a goat's blood. Kaprenda? Yeah. Okay, but that was the actual, the actual implementation. And that's why they came down to Mitzrayim. 22 years later, when Yosef reveals himself, he says, there's a hunger in Eretz Yisrael, come here, I'll take care of you. The beginning of the exile of Egypt is that the first family of the Jewish people can't get along. There is profound discord and contention. The night before they go free, God says, we have to go back to that moment. But we're going to do it differently. And it's really incredible when you see these connections in Chumash that you can overlook superficially. So he says, take Agudas Ezov. The word Aguda means what? Gathering. Gathering. A bundle. Igud. Right? Aguda Aveyasuchulam. Aguda Echos. You heard of the organization? Agudas Yisrael, right? Aguda. To bomb. Bring together. That's the point, to bring together. Bring together means Reuven, Shimon, Levi, Yehuda, Yisach, Hazvul, and Yosef. Different personalities, different souls. But you have to be able to be here for each other. You can't allow other calculations. Though. Take Agudas Ezef, dip it in that blood of the goat or the sheep. But this time, you know what you're going to do with the blood? You're not going to send it to your father. You're going to put it around your house. And you're going to say, in this house there's a family. And don't leave the house till the morning. What does that mean? What that means is, I don't care if you're arguing, but you stay in the house. Argue around the same table. Don't run out of the house. It's easy for me to run out of the house, slam the door. I'm not part of your family. I'm done with you. No, no, no. Sit in that house till the morning. Then I'll recognize that you are a free people because you will not be able to be free if internally you cannot really respect otherness, you cannot really unite with your brothers and sisters, you can't really make peace with them, and you will not survive if you're not going to have each other. So that's the Pesach, that's Nechol Bechabura. It was one of the, the second Alexander Rebbe, it was known as the Yismach Yisrael, the Yismach, he passed away in 1910, it was one of the greatest Rebbes in Poland, the Alexander Rebbe. Last name was Danziger of Danziger. 
has a sefer called Yismach Yisrael. Beautiful sefer. It's on Parshus HaChodesh. He writes a whole shtickle that he says, the Gemara says, Tuma Tchuya Uhutra B'Tzibur. If most of Klal Yisrael is impure, they're allowed to bring all the carbonists, they're allowed to bring carbon Pesach, even when they're impure. Imagine, Koyanim go into the Beis HaMikdash, they're impure, usually it's a death penalty, it's Karis. But if most of the Koyanim, or most of the Jewish people are impure, you're allowed to do all the carbonists. In fact, there were those who wanted to be, and still those who wanted to be Makr of the carbon Pesach in our times, because they say, since most of Klal Yisrael is Tameh, you're allowed to do it. And as long as you build a Mizbeach, and you know the Rambam says you can be makr of a carbon even without a Beis HaMikdash, as long as you have a Mizbeach. So there are those who called and call for doing the carbon Pesach even today, because halachically, there's many sources that it's permissible. Rabbi Chiel Meparis wanted to do it. Some soif, I mean, there was a Tzvi Kalash, there were a lot of great people who wanted to do it. Because Tchumat Chuyabetzibur. So the Yismach Yisrael says, what does that really mean? It really means that when people are together, they can transcend the impurity. Even though there's impurity, but you can transcend it. So when you understand the identity of the Jewish people, the Chabura is not luxury. It's essential. As we say in Berches HaChodesh, before Rish Chodesh, Kol Yisrael, Chaveirim Kol Yisrael V'noimar Ame. Why will he gather us together? You're in Australia, I'm in New Zealand, he's in Moscow, she's in London, he's in Paris, in Tel Aviv, he's in New York, and this one is even in Rockland County. The answer is, Chaveirim call Yisrael. The word Chaveirim, Chaver, comes from the word Chibur, connection. Whenever there's a connection, so then people could be fully cognizant of who they really are. It's an explanation. If I'm God, I'm the source of oneness. So oneness is essential. Ah? One second. This is a... So now we come back. Remember, there's the Jew who feels disconnected because my father fell asleep, my grandfather fell asleep. There's a Jew who feels disassociated. There's the Jew who eulogizes everybody who fell asleep, even with a certain sense of uh, dismissiveness or vindictiveness. You see it in Israel all the time, the religious, the secular, it's complicated over there. And I'm not just talking about practically, even emotionally. And there are those who say, how will this nation be worthy of redemption, etc. So the Rebbe said, Klal Yisrael is one chaburah. And never ever has there been a situation that everybody fell asleep. And as long as somebody is awake, and Loy Alman Yisrael, there's always those who are awake. So then everybody else, they're still part of exactly the same meal. And when they emerge, when they wake up, they're not starting something new. They don't have to recreate a new identity. They jump right back into their meal. Because somebody in the Chabura never ever went to sleep. Even if the whole group snoozes, still it's good. Certainly somebody didn't even snooze, was always awake. So therefore, therefore, at some point everybody wakes up. Everybody wakes up. You're not waking up 
to a new Seder, to a new story, to a new meal, to a new relationship that never existed. You're waking up to a reality that is part of you, that was always part of you, to a meal that was waiting for you, to the chairs that were left open for you, and you're part of the same meal. And therefore, it's not just their meal wasn't interrupted, your story was never interrupted. Because the Bnei Chavura remained awake throughout history, and in every generation you'll never have a situation that everybody's asleep. Sometimes it becomes very personal with parents. We live in a time where there's children, many children and many families, who at some point in their life choose a different path than their parents. And whatever the causes, whatever the factors behind it, that's not today's analysis, but they choose a different path. The path of their parents, their grandparents, their great-grandparents, maybe for thousands of years, they say, I'm done. This is not for me. It's too painful for me. I don't believe in it. It's confusing for me. It's boring. It's irrelevant. It's not my table. It's not my meal. It's not my fate. It's not my destiny. It's not my vocation. I'm gone. Whether physically I'm gone, spiritually I'm gone, emotionally I'm gone. Maybe I'll show up at the table out of respect for Bubby. I'll even... Put on my keep out of respect for Zaidi, but the moment I'll say goodbye, I'm on my own. And it's very, very heart wrenching, especially for parents, siblings, grandparents, uncles, aunts to see this. And this is where this halacha becomes not just important, but it becomes vital and it's oxygen. What is your job at that moment? Your job at that moment is you don't fall asleep. You don't fall into a slumber. You don't fall into a depression. You don't fall into anger or cynicism. And you believe that their meal has not been interrupted. You hold those cheers open and warm and welcome and vibrant and alive. You never go down that dangerous path of, of, of sleep, of alienation, of you're detached from me, I'm detached from you, our meals are separate forever, have a good day. If you're ready to wake up, come back and I'll think about it. No. It's a chabura. You stay at the table alive, alert, awake. Because there'll be moments that person is going to peek in. And see what's happening. And if there's a Bnei Chaburah who are there welcoming him or her back, they'll jump right back in because they never really left. Because there was a Chaburah that was always present and we're all connected in that group. We're all part of that oneness. Nobody is ever outside of that Chaburah. Call Yisrael Chaverim. Nobody was excluded from that. But the ones who have the privilege and God gave them the gift to stay up, they have to realize the preciousness of their mission. And it's expressed even in very practical ways, emotionally, psychologically, in behavior. Sometimes a teenager or a young adult, a young man, a young woman, they're going through their phases. Some of those phases are difficult. There's a lot of attitude, 
grouchiness, negativity, sometimes what seems like to be very rude and obnoxious, often a lot of trauma and brokenness. And your teenage daughter or someone else comes into the kitchen one o'clock in the morning, as I always say, opens the refrigerator, says there's nothing to eat in this house. You just went to Costco and you have food there to feed an army for three and a half years. The refrigerator is stuffed to the point that people can be nourished here until after Tchisamesim. But not for your family, not for your daughter. There's nothing to eat. There's a natural inclination. You're detaching from me. I want to detach from you. You're giving me a negative attitude. I want to give you a negative attitude. Go to another house. Don't be so ungrateful. I become defensive. In other words, you lure me in to that path where I also decompose, I also disintegrate. What do you have to do at that moment? Don't fall asleep. What's the difference between people who are awake and people who are asleep? When I'm sleeping, my head, my heart, and my legs are on the same level. You understand? My prefrontal cortex, my limbic brain, my amygdala, and my feet are all on the same level. I can't function with my higher brain. (laughs) My executive functioning is asleep. I'm asleep. All I can do is survive. That's what we do. Which is important to sleep. It's important. The amygdala has to recharge. The body has to recharge. But you can't expect a person who's asleep to process and bring into the conversation their executive functioning, their prefrontal lobes, long-term vision, deep connections, deep vision. I can't. I function based on impulse, impulse. And if I lose it, I blow up. Don't fall asleep. You stay awake. (laughs) Not just for your sake, for their sake and for your sake. For you, that relationship remains intact. I'm not going to lose it. I may want to lose it. I may have to take a deep breath. I may need to do a little vooing, a little samat, whatever. I need to calm my nervous system. I got to wake up myself. But the worst thing I can do is I go into that resentful, angry place and cut the cord and say, you're not part of this chabura. What I want to, I want to always bring my best, my noblest, my deepest connected identity into the relationship. You may come down every night and tell me a comment that is very, very unbefitting. And I could scream about Derek Heretz, but at this point you're so broken, it's become meaningless. You'll just feel alienated from me. But what I want to do is, when you walk into that kitchen, I want to smile, look you in your eyes, and tell you how happy I am that you're here. Yes, I know there's nothing to eat. Come, let's go get sushi. I don't know why you do that at one in the morning, but maybe a little earlier. Maybe a milkshake. Let's make something good. Nachos. Nachos. Did I pronounce that correctly? Okay. It's not what you make. The point is you're present. You know what? The person may not respond in kind. I'm not happy to be here. Smile. I'm here. I'm awake. I'm here. Because you know what happens after a few weeks? That smile, that love, it takes root. Like a seed, it takes root. It takes root in the heart. Attachment 
everybody needs attachment. <laughs> there's not a person who was created that does not need attachment. And there's a reason for it, because we are attached. <laughs> I need attachment because that's who I am. And those who say they don't need attachment, it's only because they can't trust their attachment, because they've been hurt. So I say, I don't need it. I don't need you. I don't want you. I hate you. I wish you were dead, which only means I desperately need you. I desperately need you. But if I'm asleep, I can't hear that. If I'm asleep, I become very judgmental because I'm triggered, because I'm not in my higher space. My vagus nerve is, is blocked. It's, it's plugged. I can't access it. So instead of connecting I become defensive. I need to protect myself. In other words, I'm falling asleep together with you. What's my job at that moment? Stay awake. To stay awake requires work. <laughs> Especially if it's late at night, like the Seder. It requires work. You need to learn how to honor your emotions. All of your emotions. But then say... And now I'm going to choose to stay awake. And stay awake means stay connected, stay alert, stay loving, stay focused. My job is to make sure that when you open your eyes, you're going to know that this was always your place. This was always your meal. This was always your home. This was always your seder. And you'll be able to jump right in. And you won't even remember (laughs) You're like, really? Sometimes what happens is you start reminding people what they did 10 years ago. No, 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 not me. (laughs) Erase the video, it's fine. (laughs) Certain videos you can erase. Because when they did it, they were asleep. And people don't remember what they do when they're asleep. And sometimes people sleep for many, many years. We know that, right? Rebchatzka Levenstein was the Mashgiach of Panovich. So he used to, you know, he liked to joke. He used to like sometimes give the Bachram, you know, some comment. So he once tells the boys, <laughs> you have to know the Litvish Yeshivas, he says, he says, you guys stay up a whole Shavuos, a whole night of Shavuos, you daven v'sikin, you daven at sunrise, when the noch shloft there biz Elul. <laughs> and then you sleep till Elul. Good Litvish Yeshivas, Elul, Elul, Elul! Rabbi Ruchim is Elul. By the Hasidim, sometimes they sleep till some Chastera. The point is, Sometimes people check out at a certain age and they may sleep for many years. And when you sleep, you don't remember what you do. You're not, you're not, you're not, you're not fully there. And you may have not chosen to fall asleep. You may have been thrown into a slumber. You know what? Everyone is on their journey. But the most important role of a Jew is you stay awake. You keep that table warm, loving, alive, vibrant, enthusiastic, elevated, inspired, empowered. So when somebody emerges from the slumber, they jump right back in to their own Seder that was never really interrupted. And together, we can then hold hands and declare L'Shana Haba B'Yerushalayim. It's not only a halacha technically, it represents the, the chazan, we're not just talking about a technical, they were talking about the hashkafa, that during the journey, Jews fall asleep. And the Karim Pesach has to be a continuum, a hemshechiyot, retzef, from the beginning of history throughout, but they fell asleep. 
But that's only if you see them levadoi. But since it's a bnei chabura and loy alman yisrael, b'meila everybody's sleep is not that significant because when they wake up they're right back in it. They're all continuing their own story, not the new story. So they're all part of it. They're all ready for the end of the Seder. Because the Bnei Chaburah are waiting, are there for them, with open doors, with open arms. So it's vintage the Rebbe. His whole approach on Avos Yisrael, huh? Instead of, instead of seeing Jews as alien and, and indifferent and apathetic, keep the doors open, keep the hearts open, and then they'll see them. You're not my type, you're not my this. Agudas Ezev. Agudas Ezev. You keep the heart and the door open. And then you allow them to be able to find their own, or their own they're, they're part of it. It's not, I don't have to give it to them. I just have to let them realize that their carbon Pesach, their Sudas Pesach never, never, was never really interrupted. It was just a little hefsik, but it's not a real hefsik. Halachically, it's not a real hefsik. It's not a real interruption. Because I'm part of them, and they're part of me. And part of us were always present, so they're also always present. When you have family that's always waiting for you and awake, so a part of you was always present, that's the beauty of it. Since I'm part of the Chabura, so even if I'm asleep, but you're part of me, I'm part of you, we're part of each other. So your presence is my presence. I'm also at the Seder, even though I don't know it because I'm sleeping. But the part of me that's always connected to you knows that it's present. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Hashem is part of the Chabud and Ashlafers. There was always a Jew who was awake. So what's Hashem Yisrael? Say, Hashem Yisrael, Shmoy Sha'eris Yisrael. Hashem Yisrael is not just Hashem. The Jew who's awake, he's Hashem Yisrael, or she's Hashem Yisrael. So as long as Layonim Velayishan, the Shaymi Yisrael, so then Al Yoyvad Yisrael, Oymin Shma Yisrael, no Yisrael will be lost. Layidach Imen Onidach. You understand? Shmoy Sheiris Am Kadosh, Val Yoyvad Goy Kadosh, Hamashal Shem Bersholosh Dushos Lekadosh. In many ways, it captures, you know, the power of Jewish history that throughout all the wars and, and difficulties, and even in the worst moments, you know. Holocausts and the Bolshev, Bolshevik darkness and, you know, huge millions of Jews were plunged into spiritual darkness. But yet, Shloime Yamune Yisrael, Shashamruet Hagachelet, Velozazumim Komam, they kept, they maintained the fire, they didn't go away, they didn't leave the Seder. They maintained it, even when everything seemed like it's falling apart. They held on to it. So what happens a generation later? A whole tshuva movement. Everybody has where to come back to. <laughs> In the standard, it's all the same thing. That was the Rebbe's voice. It's, don't stop looking at it as two separate communities. There's the religious jury and the secular jury. No, it's a chabura. It's bnei chabura. We're at one table. Yeah. Yeah, so keep, keep the door and heart open. Keep the cheer warm. Tell them it's your cheer. And then everybody comes back at some point, but they have where to come back to. Because you feel the chavur, that itself helps them come back. Have a wonderful week.
This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.